praise in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. The following is a sermon recently preached at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this message. Our text this morning introduces us to another world, a place that's very distant from our experience. We've been uh, introduced to Ahasuerus, king of Persia. We've been introduced to his wife, Vashti, and the royal palace in the citadel of Shushan. This differs a lot from what we, we experience. We don't know what it's like to live under the reign of a pagan king, a sovereign ruler whose every whim is my command. A sovereign ruler who, when he's angry, he makes decisions and they're irreversible. He has absolute rule over men and over women. It's a kingdom that has exorbitant wealth. That's the, the setting that, that, that chapter 1 takes place. Is King Ahasuerus is boasting about how great and how mighty and how powerful he is. He's boasting about his strength and his, his wealth. He's, he's showing off to all of his nobles. This is a, a different world for us. And uh, it's, it's not necessarily very easy for us to imagine what it would have been like to live then and live, live there. But this is the world in which the story of Esther takes place. And the story of Esther is a story. It's a narrative. It's easy to listen to. The reason that Esther chapter 1 is in, the book of, is in the book of Esther in the Bible is because it sets the stage for the rest of the story. We need to know why, why a Jewess is enabled to become the queen of Persia when the laws of the Medes and Persians said that the king had to take his queen from one of the nobles families. So the story of Esther is a story. It's a narrative. It's easy to listen to. It's compelling. It's the kind of thing that kids love to hear. It's, it's, it's like a story time. Let's, let's have some story time. Let's read a story. And let's read Esther. It's a story. And this was by God's design. He wanted us to be able to enjoy the, the rises and falls and the, and the, and the storyline, the plot line of, of the book of Esther. It's in, the book is intended to be told, it's intended to be told in context, and it's in, intended for us to learn from the flow of the narrative. Now there are some things that make it hard to preach from us narratives. One aspect is that uh, when you have a narrative, it's difficult to get teaching. It's not like uh, Romans or some of the other uh, epistles where they're, they're very uh, full of... of Principles where you can preach verse by verse and, and, and expound on it, and this is this is what it means. Uh, it's it's not uh, it's not something that we want to moralize um, in the sense of uh, we want, we don't want to say more than what the text is saying. So, for instance, in this chapter, um, Ahasuerus is re is represented as the king of Persia. He's the ruler of 127 princesses, princes, provinces. He's rich beyond imagination. He's generous. He's all glorious, but he can't get his own wife to obey him. Here he is, 
the king of Persia, and he gives one simple command to his wife, and she refuses it. This is a problem for him. So on the advice of his advisors and his lawyers, he banishes Vashti from his presence permanently. It's re, verse 19, it's recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered. Now, we can infer from this that Ahasuerus was drunk when he made this command, when he made this law. He was proud, he was boastful, he was passionate. But the text doesn't really judge him for this. It just records what happened because it sets the stage for the story. Our text also this morning does not judge Vashti. Vashti did not obey the king. The text doesn't judge her for not obeying or disobeying him. But commentators have tried to vindicate her as a hero, a hero of feminist virtue. She didn't bow down to that, that chauvinist man. They've tried to uh, condemn her for disobedience to her husband. They've tried to come up with justifications for her behavior. Um, and there are many explanations. One is that they thought maybe she was pregnant and she didn't want to appear before these men. Another is maybe, well, definitely Persian decorum generally didn't allow for women to be in the, in the presence of men who were not their husband. Another one was, is, uh, this has actually been a fairly common explanation, is that uh, commentators have supposed that Vashti was commanded to appear before the king wearing only her crown to show off her beauty. And this obviously would vindicate Vashti for refusing. But our text is simply silent on the matter. The point of the narrative is to set the stage for how Esther came to be the queen of Persia. There are comparisons to be made between Vashti and Esther, but we'll come to that next week since we haven't really been introduced to Esther yet. Um, this, this story took place in history. It's not something that some... It, it seems to bring us to another world. It seems to bring us to a place that is so far distant from what our experience is that it's hard to, to connect to it. But this story did take place in history. The two uh, Persian monarchs that are most frequently put forth to have been Ahasuerus are either Xerxes I, which Ahasuerus is another name for, it's, a, it's another uh, language for Xerxes, or Artaxerxes II, who was also known as Xerxes in his time. Now, Ahasuerus is a Hebrew form of the name Xerxes, and both of these kings are known by that. And I believe that Artaxerxes II was Ahasuerus. It's, this changes the, the dating by about 85 years. Um, but in the, and that's partly why I believe that Artaxerxes II was uh, Ahasuerus. He, uh, he would have, uh, it fits better with the timelines that we find in the Bible in Ezra, in Nehemiah, and in Esther. So uh, when we consider that Artaxerxes II is Ahasuerus, it takes us back to 2,400 years ago about to the year 400 BC, the third year of Ahasuerus' reign in the Persian Empire. Now, Mordecai is, 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 the, is uh, the traditional author, is understood to be the author of the book. He, he compiled 
uh, the story and he wrote letters that were sent out across the uh, Persian Empire and he, uh, he did that in his role as an, a palace official and we'll be reading about that in chapter 9 and the book is going to have been compiled by uh, compiling those letters together. Now the book of Esther has uh, several themes. First of all, there's, there are many contrasts and comparisons. There are comparisons between good and evil, humble and proud, faithful and unfaithful men and women. Comparisons between Haman and Mordecai. Haman is the, the villain in the story. Mordecai is Esther's uncle and adopted father, or actually cousin and adopted father. There are comparisons to be drawn between Esther and Vashti, two different queens. There are comparisons between the Jews and their enemies and how they treat each other. There are comparisons between the feasts of Ahasuerus, found here in chapter 1, and the feasts of the Jews, found later in chapters 9 and 10, uh, and chapter 8, of the Feast of Purim. The central point of the book of Esther is that God's providence is in it, is God's providence in impossible situations. The central point of the book is God's providence in impossible situations. Which is interesting because God is never mentioned in the book. His name is not in the book of Esther. No, no, no version of his name is in the book of Esther. It's just a story. But the point of the book is his providence. His providence to save his people in the midst of overwhelming odds. In the midst of a kingdom that is pagan and that is proud and is full of itself, God's capable of saving his people. A part of the thing that enables me to be able to confidently tell you that uh, the, the point of the book is God's ability to work through strange situations and through normal life is that uh, there's a literary device in this book. I know you guys have all heard of chiasms before. The book is a chiasm. It starts with the feasts of Ahasuerus and it ends with the feasts of Purim. There's a comparison to be drawn there. The next step in the chiasm is, is Haman's plot to kill and annihilate the Jews. It bounces off of, at the, towards the end of his book, Haman's downfall. And then between those is Esther's banquet, her first banquet. She goes to the king, she's trying to, to plead for the, the lives of the Jews, and she invites the king to a banquet. And then, after she has the king over for a banquet, there is a, a chapter in between, that's the center of the chiasm, then she throws a second banquet. And that's where she presents her petition. But at the chapter in between, that's the center of our chiasm, that, and that's chapter 6. And in, and in chapter 6, the king has a sleepless night. And he, he can't sleep, and so he has, has the, his... his uh, his servants read to him from, from the, the records of the kingdom, and he, he remembers, he hears, of, uh, they read of Mordecai, how Mordecai had, had, had saved his life. And so the king determines to bless him. And Haman comes in, and, and, and he's about ready to ask for Mordecai's life. And the king instead has him honor Mordecai and, and lead him through the city on the king's horse. 
That's the hinge of the book. That's right. When, when God's enemies are just about ready to snap and attack his people through no control of their own, God stops them. They, men can plot all they want against God's people, but God is there with providence for his people. So we have the theme of contrast and comparison. The central point of the book is God's providence. And then there's a big theme of feasting in this book. We have Ahasuerus throwing a feast at the beginning. Vashti throws a feast for the nobles' wives. Esther throws a banquet for Haman and the king. And she throws another banquet for Haman and the king. Then Esther and the Jews and Mordecai institute the feasts of Purim which are to be practiced and remembered through all generations. Now this brings us to the purpose for the book of Esther. Why do we have the book of Esther? What was God's point in giving us this book, especially to the people who first compiled it? Well, the purpose of Esther was to explain to the Jews why they celebrate Purim. Now the Jews have five feasts in their in their in their year that where they remember the works that the Lord has done for them. Uh, the first three were given to them by Moses: the feast of Passover, the feast of feast of weeks, and the feast of booths. And and, and for all of those, they would travel to Jerusalem and and celebrate. There are two feasts that were, are not uh, given by Moses. We have the feast of Purim, which is. Uh, uh, still today celebrated by by the Jews and given to us by Esther and Mordecai. And and, the, and then the fifth feast was uh, uh, Hanukkah, which uh, came after the events that are recorded in the Old Testament. Uh, because when the Jews were uh, able to to go back to the land, the promised land, uh, and gain some political victory there. But the point of Esther is this, or the, the purpose for Esther is this. You can find it in Esther chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. The Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Esther was written to tell the Jews, this is, this is something we're celebrating. God provides for us. Let's celebrate that. God has saved us as a people. Let's celebrate that. And over the years, Purim has, has become a real a, a time of celebration. There, there, there are, there are uh, traditions for a celebration of the, the Feast of Purim. There's a fast on the, on, the first, on the day before Purim, where the Jews remember how they were hated. They remember the anti-Semitism of, of the Persians. And they remember that. And they fast as in, in memory of, of how they, they, they faced harsh enemies. But then that night, they read the story of Esther. They read the whole story. It's a story. It's intended to be read and enjoyed. They read the whole story that night. And then they read it again the next day on the, on the day of Purim, and it, which is either the 14th or the 15th of, of Adar, 
which uh, is, is a month of the Jewish calendar, which is in February to March. They read it as a community. They came together to the, to the uh, um, synagogue, and they would sit as a community, and they would read together. And, and, and they read it as a community. The, the, the community, the congregation, would hiss and make noise whenever Haman's name was said. And they said they would do this because Haman was an Amalekite. He, Haman was an Agagite. He was a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, who were enemies in perpetuity against the Jews that we read about in, the, in, in First and Second Kings. And so, and God said He's going to blot their name out from history, from the world. So that's why the Jews, when Haman's name is read, they hiss and they make noise because we're blotting out the name of God's enemies. The kids would dress up like Esther and Ahasuerus. Like kings and queens. Families would feast. They'd commune together. And this is all to remind them that they are a community. With a common ancestry. And a common history. And with a God that saved the Jews from annihilation. So Purim is intended to remind the Jews that God is still working in this world. Just like he did in Esther's 2500, 2400 years ago. So now we come to application. We have a church calendar. If you look on the front of your bulletins, you'll notice that today is the first Sunday of Trinity. And this is because the church is remembering the works of God. The way that the Bible told the Jews to remember the feasts of Passover and Booths and Weeks and Purim. The church here is based on the life of Christ. Obviously, Advent and Christmas celebrates His coming and His birth, passionately. Celebrates His suffering. And Easter celebrates His resurrection. Likewise, Ascension and Pentecost have obvious connections to events in the life of Christ in the church. Ascension when Christ was lifted into heaven. Last week was Pentecost, which ushered in the, the, the season of Trinity. Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit was given to the church. Today is Holy Trinity Sunday, and it is generally not well known or understood among Christians today. Trinity season is the longest season in the church year, stretching all the way from today to the beginning of Advent, which is about the last week of November. So how, what is Trinity season all about? What, what is Trinity season all about? Well, every, every other week we read the Apostles' Creed here, and every other week we read the Nicene Creed, and they tell us of the work of God. We are Trinitarians, and our creeds tell us of the work of God. So I believe in God the Father Almighty. So we believe in the Father. And then what did he do? It lists his work. The maker of heaven and earth. That's, that, that's where God's work was primary. The Father's work was primary in the creation and in in his sovereign control over heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And what was his work? Well, he was conceived as a man. He became a man. He was crucified. He suffered. 
He died. He paid the penalty for our sins. He he reconciled us to God. He descended into hell the third day. He rose again from the dead. And he ascended into heaven. That's that's what the the church calendar is all about. It's the work and life of Jesus Christ. We have Christmas. And we have Passion. We have Resurrection. He ascended into heaven. We have the ascension. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So that's what he's doing now. And in the life, in the work of Jesus, the Father was implicit and the Spirit was implicit. In the work of the Father, the, 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 the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit were implicit. We read, the, we read the creation account. But in the creation account, God created, the Father created, but he spoke words. Jesus, I am the Word, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And with him all things were made, without him nothing was made. The Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. The work of the Son and the Spirit is implicit in the work of the Father. And the third point, the third section of the creed is, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And Pentecost... The Holy Spirit is given to man. He's given to us. He comes into our hearts. We have communion with God on an individual basis with the Holy Ghost. And it creates a community out of us. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Catholic Church is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the community. The communion of saints. We have oneness. The forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit renews our hearts. He gives us a heart of flesh and takes out the heart of stone that we're born with. The resurrection of the body is the work of the Spirit and life everlasting. And we have that now. So in the season of Trinity, we have... We have the opportunity to celebrate our God as He has revealed Himself to us. He is a Trinity. We are Trinitarians. This is important. This is what separates us from all the false religions out there. All other false religions don't get this. Now, we don't get it well enough, but they don't get this at all. It's a mystery. How can God be three and one? And yet, He is. And unless we accept that, we can't make, make, make heads or tails out of what's going on in the world. Whatever men come up with misses the point somewhere along the way. And we need His God's revelation. We need His Spirit in order to see this. If we want to have fellowship with God, if we want to know God, we have to know Him according to truth. And the Bible is the truth. Jesus is the truth. And he reveals himself to us. And how did he reveal himself to us? He came. He loved us. He paid for our sins. He freely blessed us with salvation. And then he went to reign in heaven. And he sent his spirit to us. So that we can be a communion. A church. This is God's gift to us in his son and his spirit. We are Trinitarians.
God has been revealed to us that we might know Him. And if we once know God, then we need to remember Him. And that's why we have a church calendar. That's why today is Holy Trinity Sunday. The Jews remembered their temporal salvation in Purim. How much more should we celebrate? How much more should we rejoice and remember our eternal salvation in the Trinity? The main point of Esther is that God's providence knows no boundaries. He can work in a pagan kingdom when his people are under the authority of wicked men. And that God's people are to remember. We are to celebrate God's work, His providence. We're to do this so that we can face our enemies with courage and with hope. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon that was recently preached at Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this message, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.